artificial intelligence as a tool, technology as a tool, and at the end of the day, the most important part is, is the person behind it, the thinking, the concept, the story, however you want to look at it. Do you think that we are doing enough as a society to perhaps be tapping into our creativity? Now suddenly you have this tool that you can like take a deep breath and it frees you from a lot of the nitty-gritty, administrative, non-creative work that you're conditioned to do in order to keep order and to function and to be productive. My guest today is Samir Yunus. She's a polymathic artist, futures farmer, and she's the driving force behind Samir Ritual, a New York-based atelier. There was this bomb that exploded and there was a sharpnel that literally just missed me by like five inches in front of my eyes and hit the wall. It makes you much more resilient as a kid, but it also made me as a creative go into that space of how can I imagine better futures and better tomorrow. You spoke a bit about bias and it's something that really concerns me when it comes to technology getting developed and I was horrified yet again last week these systems that are already kind of rigged, that are super kind of male dominant, super white male dominant, etc. I don't think there is an adequate representation within those companies to develop the AI. There is no indigenous voices, there is no elderly, there is not necessarily young people, kids, all their voices are not present within the data set or within the framework of how the data is being developed. They're shaping our future, and out of billions of women on the planet, there is not one that could be sitting on the board. Hi, Samar, and welcome to another episode of Hyperscale. Thank you for joining me in Dubai for this live episode. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Tell us a little bit about your, your background, because as I was doing my research, it is so fascinating to see almost the intersect between art and technology and the likes of artificial intelligence with your work? Yeah, um, my background is quite unusual because my I started, I initially studied architecture and sonography in London and then I always was interested in art as a means for um, social justice and as a way to communicate different causes through public art and installation art. At the time when I went to school, that wasn't really a discipline. Uh, so I sort of stumbled upon the world of retail design accidentally. And I thought, you know, that could be an interesting platform to democratize art outside of a museum. What if such installation and such art could be within the realm of customer experiences? And that way you can sort of communicate causes and different things within the framework of retail, which makes it a bit more, uh, you know, accessible for most. Uh, and that's how I started my journey. I kind of worked for 20 years uh, as an artistic director for uh, various uh, retailers uh, in the luxury space and lifestyle space. And it was mostly about creating these very kind of immersive storytelling through uh, spa spatial so storytelling and spatial experiences. And because I worked across all mediums, meaning you know architecture, styling, um, experience, senses, uh, because the range of things that we did was quite wide, um, 
as you know, uh, eventually the intersection of digital and physical was very much the norm in, in that world. In building brands, you have to sort of think of both spaces uh, in a very symbiotic way. So I slowly start, started to get into the sort of digital space and through that particular intersection, I recognize that there is a lack of uh, artisanship and interesting expression through the digital space. And that's how I kind of went into AI to sort of develop a more, what I call artisanal intelligence, which we can dive into a little bit later, uh, at the intersection of artificial intelligence. Because having worked with so many artists and artisans, I wanted to sort of make sure that the visceral quality that you find in, in spaces and in experiences and in artisan and craftsmanship is not lost through uh, artificial intelligence and how those two complement each other as a future medium. What's your thoughts about all of this controversy with AI and how it's impacting artists at the moment? I saw a photo competition, and I think it happened this year, where an AI photo was up on display and it actually won the competition and a lot of artists pushed back and they actually said, well, you know what, this is an art. What's your thoughts about this? Well, my thoughts is every era has uh, a very fundamental, disruptive sort of revolution. Uh, if you think of when photography was born uh, as opposed to when we had uh, very still life realistic paintings. It disrupted the realistic painting industry and it forced the painters uh, to sort of adapt a new genre of painting that's what was the birth of contemporary uh, and sort of abstract contemporary painting movement that sort of did, stepped away from realism because photography replicated realism. I don't think artificial intelligence is just a tool to me. It's just another sort of tool as part of my artist kit, you know, just like I would use a pen, a piece of clay, a sort of computer, it's just like another tool in your sort of arsenal. The difference is it's sort of as a super intelligence tool that you co-create with. It's not just a passive tool, and that is the difference. And I, I do feel it's gonna, it, it is revolutionizing the creative process and. Artists should sort of use it as part of their arsenal versus worrying about it because there is no way on earth um, it's going to replace artists because you need artists. You're, you're, you're never going to be able to create really interesting pieces of work, even through AI, without the artistry perspective, the knowledge of the artist, the taste level, the curatorial perspective. It's not just a picture that you create. A million people can create a picture but is developing the sort of sensibility of a certain image, whether it is a flat image or we have also 3D AI, we have all types of AI in the future that might be also sculptures or all types of stuff. You need to be able to understand how you communicate with it and how it's going to superpower your process and not worry so much about it replacing your process. And I think it's important that artists' voices are and, and sort of perspective and data are in the mix now not sort of waiting until the sort of storms dies down because the storm is not going to die down. On the contrary, they'll, their important perspective and their voice and how they want to regulate it sort of being to, to be developed in a way that feels ethically right, they'll be left out if they're not involved now. So I think it's better to embrace it 
as a power to reclaim radical imagination and reclaim your creative power versus worrying about it dwarfing your creativity. I think that makes a lot of sense and just even thinking about myself and my thoughts about the future as well, as I often say to people, well, listen, we have two choices here. The future is going to evolve whether we like it or not. Change is going to happen. And we can either sit back and be fearful and be frightened or we can get involved and we can participate and we can be part of its its evolution. Right, absolutely. And I wholeheartedly agree. Whether you like technology or not, and you don't have to like technology, Think of it as sort of more of, of a companion that's going to be there that you'll be able to sort of utilize as a tool to help you along the way to sort of pick and choose how you want to sort of, you know, free up the things that drown you down and sort of give you more space to superpower yourself in, in a variety of different ways. What's your thoughts about society these days? So you spoke a bit about how artificial intelligence as a tool, technology as a tool, and at the end of the day, it's to do, the most important part is is the person behind it, the thinking, the concept, the story, however you want to look at it. Do you think that we are doing enough as a society to perhaps be tapping into our creativity? Because I often think that in today's world with algorithms and this very... Uh, you know, we're very stuck to our couch, you know, we're, we're very distracted. We've got TikTok and Netflix and stuff like this. I, I sometimes wonder if we, we don't give ourselves the chance to sit there, sit there in our silence and explore our thoughts, explore our creativity. I think it's a great question because obviously we're in an era where we are overloaded with information versus sort of have the sort of brain space and the mental clarity to be able to create and when you're overloaded, typically it affects your creativity because every creative or any person needs mind space, need negative, needs negative space in order to kind of innovate or create interesting, you know, thoughts and idea or be around certain sort of groups of people or within a certain tangible kind of space in order to create. I'm really interested in generative AI versus, you know, AI because it's so wide as a sort of, technology there is a lot of and it reflects us as human it reflects the bad and the good because we created so we created in our image we have the good and the bad in there I do feel if we focus our effort into how can we reclaim our creativity and radical imagination through that tool how can we relink to our childlike uh, qualities the problem is with a lot of you know in adulthood a lot of the things that you used to, you kind of admire and cherish with kids usually are their fertile imagination, are the ability to imagine better future and imagine like really amazing things. They are super wild in their perspective and we focus so much on civilizing them or unwilding them. And the problem with doing so in adulthood, it creates a lot more rigidity and it affects mental well-being and it sort of affects your particular perspective because your perspective becomes about productivity versus creativity and by having that perspective it dwarfs that part of you that's the child childlike within which is being able to radically imagine now suddenly you have this tool that suddenly you can like take a deep breath and it frees you from a lot of the 
nitty-gritty kind of administrative, non-creative work that you're conditioned to do in order to keep, you know, order and to function and to be productive, that is something that could be done in a very easy way and be kind of elevated through generative AI so you can function on going deeper. I don't believe this technology is making us lazier or it's there to sort of make things easier. On the contrary, it's our responsibility because we do have this technology that it sort of gives us better work-life balance for the society to sort of evolve and function. It is also there to create more equity across all creatives. Because of superpower creativity, for people who haven't had the chance to develop certain skills uh, because of you know socioeconomic sort of uh, construct, now they have the capability to do so. So it allows you to go actually deeper and sort of really um, be able to challenge the things that you kind of always have an excuse to do super fast. Oh, I can't think of circularity. I can't think of sustainability. There is a deadline. This is super kind of difficult. I don't have the bandwidth to sort of really develop this. Now you really don't have as much of an excuse. So your productivity is more like your social responsibility to sort of dig deeper with that technology versus sort of going about it and like speeding out your workflow, which it will, but it's going to speed up your kind of non-intellectual workflow, the stuff that just with the administrative productivity kind of perspective workflow. I think this is a fascinating topic. And you mentioned about how as, as children, we have this childlike curiosity, this creativity, and then perhaps it's tapped out of us due to society constructs or whatever it may be. Do you think that we do enough for kids these days in the education space to allow them that space to, to be creative? Or do you find that it's perhaps too rigid? Are, are, we, are we educating children wrong? That's the thing. The sort of framework of how education is now is, hasn't been updated for a while now. And it sort of is very much embedded in a lot of a variety of different structures that are problematic across the board. Either they are colonial in their sort of like construct or they are very rigid or they're not really kind of take thinking of education as a resource for the community. It's thinking of education as a commodity. You need to have it as a commodity in order to, to sort of educate yourself. The future is more about thinking about education as a resource for the entire community. And because we when you position education as a resource, it becomes intergenerational. It becomes something that's continuous. Because education is not sort of like this trophy that you just like, you know, run to get and then it's done. You know, education is a continuous learning. And if you think of like tapping into indigenous community of their perspective on education and how it's like a continuous sort of evolution and how anybody keeps evolving and keeps shifting who they are because they naturally shift. You naturally shift over your career about what your focus is and what your passions are. And we tend to put ourselves in a box versus think of ourselves as these very kind of kaleidoscopic moving identities that are con continuously evolving because it's tied back to this construct of education that it's something that sort of stops here. I checked that box, I got that degree, and this, this is what defines me. I don't like to define 
myself or I keep shifting my title over and over because it it will correspond to what I'm feeling or what I'm into at the moment and it will keep evolving just like I think the ancient Greek used to think that way where you might you know start off as a, a soldier or sort of serve in the community eventually you become a philosopher and you go through many different layers through your upbringing and your life obviously each culture and each generation has something different to offer but the framework of the future of education if you think of it as first of all the classroom becoming not necessarily a classroom that's sort of as rigid maybe it's a third space that might be in nature maybe it's like much more connected with learning not only from peer to peer but also from the environment around you being able to connect in a very visceral way from the get-go with the planet around you so that shifting where the classroom would take place a and b kind of thinking about it as being able to connect with a variety of of people within the community to learn from them in a variety of ways in addition to classes but those classes would be structured in a very different way if we think of the future of education especially with the birth of a technology that's going to give us on-demand, personalized, really tailored education for a plethora of different people, whether they have a specific learning challenge or a specific interest that they want to like emphasize more on. Right now, you do have an amazing uh, opportunity to really create the super personalized bespoke experiences that are intergenerational and that account to thinking of a variety of different learning module uh, from a variety of different cultures within it. I think it's very interesting. I, I was thinking this the other day about how different children are these days. And I'm sure every single generation says this when they look back. I'm sure an older generation said that about my generation when we were growing up. But I, I look at the children of uh, the people I train with at the gym and these kids are digital natives. They're on their iPads. Like, they just stay glued to their iPad for half an hour. They're digital natives. We have, oh, gosh, I think it's like over 60 million daily users on Roblox or some crazy amount. Like, kids these days are growing up as digital natives. So I agree with you. I think we have to very much rethink how we are doing education. And the classroom, because they're a digital native, which is great, the classroom has to immediately then be rethought as something that needs to be the anti sort of digital framework. It will be also digital, but how can like, you know, if you think of like a fantasy sort of scenario, think of like Avatar the movie or something like that, where you have a very kind of close interconnection with nature as the environment as well as technology. There is like this amazing story my dad used to tell me. His classroom was under a fig tree. That's where they used to sort of all learn as kids. And his dad used to tell them the story. I mean, they all went on to being like doctors and engineer and what, what have you. But they learned a big part of their schooling because it was during that period and during the era. It was sitting under the fig tree completely surrounded in nature. And that particular framework, when I even think about it and sort of imagine the variety of different things around them that really kind of also informed everything they know and their resilience and what they kind of took from that particular class as opposed to if it was in a typical classroom. Where would you say a majority of, of your inspiration comes for your art? So a lot of my art, a lot of the aesthetic that we're surrounded by is very much 
dominated by the images that surrounds us, which is the global north. I'm interested in the perspective of the global south because this is where a lot of the future is going to be. And oftentimes the global south is presented from a very biased stereotypical perspective. And as a matter of fact, when I started doing AI to try to sort of pull those aesthetics, I got a lot of the imagery that would come about were super stereotyped because it sort of portrays all these cultures through the lens of Western kind of the Western gaze. And it wouldn't give you the sort of opportunity to sort of what if you're actually imagining culture or these particular cultural framework through a very different perspective that's equally futuristic and modern, but not through that Western gaze. And that's where I sort of, you know, ended up creating over 50,000 images in order to sort of use them as uh, research and be able to sort of beat the bias because a lot of my work is very much intersectional with culture, art, design, and also trying to sort of embed these kind of concept of interspecies. Uh, a lot, I, I use a lot of nature and biomimicry, but you know, thinking of interspecies or interplanetary, there's always this kind of odd, unexpected, but it's sort of as part of the imagination. You know, being having grown up in a war zone, this is what I use as my lifeline. And it's something that I feel enables you to sort of imagine. It gives you the tool to sort of really think about no limitation as far as what you can create visually. So to me, I'm really excited about presenting, you know, the framework of the Global South and, uh, you know, the variety of diverse culture through a futuristic lens that's not your typical kind of Western framework. So instead of like Afrofuturism, I would sort of call it more Global South Futurism or Levantine Futurism would be a bit more my kind of spiel. So you, you mentioned a bit about growing up in a, a war zone. Can mm-hmm. you, you tell us about your, your upbringing? Like, what was that like? Where was it? Um, so, yeah, I grew up in Beirut, and um, it was during, I'm aging myself, but it's okay, during the late 70s and early 80s. And um, during that period, it was like, you know, at the sort of, in the middle of the civil war. And, you know, you have one war after another that sort of, tour the entire region and uh, I remember very clearly one day because we grew up in a household my dad is American educated he's a doctor and he went to UCLA so all our references at home used to be very much surrounded by American pop culture whether it's music whether it's shows TV so we're watching the Cosby show out of all shows and there was a ceasefire so we could you know technically sit and watch it and suddenly there was this bomb that sort of exploded and there was a sharp note that literally just missed me by like maybe five inches in front of my eyes and hit the wall. And I, maybe I was eight, but it was, you know, I consider myself so privileged if you look at, you know, and pers- just relatively of what's happening right now because I did have a shelter to go down to and I did have commodities and electricity and a place to escape to. But that particular was the only time I, I remember really crying during the war and, you know, not really making sense of what's happening or, or why is sort of, why is the bombing happening? But it makes you much more resilient as a kid. But it also made me as a creative uh, kind of go into that space of how can I imagine better futures and better tomorrow? How can I imagine 
cultural symbiosity and sort of connection through different religion or, you know, different kind of backgrounds in ways that feels like much more exciting and, and hopeful versus what I was sort of surrounded by. These days, when it comes to art, what kind of, of, of narratives do you think are the most pressing to be told? I think, you know, artists have always been uh, the people who observed uh, culture and sort of the very first futurists, if you want to sort of so call it, and the first activists, because they are always reflected in society, what society has the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think right now it's a very odd era um, because, of course, you have also a slew of censorship that's also happening with art in general. And it's not the first time it's happened. It's happened during different periods and different movement. Where are you seeing the censorship in particular? There is particular censorship right now with a lot of you know, uh, Palestinian voices, for instance, or artists that are sort of speaking of that particular uh, issue. And, you know, if you think about art, art is something that sort of is a tool to communicate for everyone, as long as it's not a tool to polarize or it's not, it's, it's a tool for you to question. And it's not the first time I've seen it happen because I was just in Berlin, actually, a few weeks ago, and there was an act, an exhibit that was from World War II, and there was a whole kind of room about propaganda art of the Soviet era, and it was like so interesting how different eras used to either destroy art or artists that didn't really like, you know, specifically during fascist regime, not all regimes, but like during fascist regime, they would destroy it. And they would sort of have a very predominant type of art that was very much, you know, in uh, cahoots with what's happening, what the status quo was, what was acceptable. I think but they used to do that with libraries as well, didn't they? Just burn the whole library of totally. books. Totally. But now we're like, it's a very odd era for this to sort of emerge because it's a very we're in a very global culture. We're in a very sort of, we think of ourselves as a very sort of forward-thinking liberal culture. So having this framework happen is very shocking to the entire art world on both ends of the spectrum and for, for all religion and all sort of sides. Because, you know, I have friends across the entire spectrum from all different backgrounds, whether they're with this or that, and they all feel equally the same. And because it's, it's one medium that you cannot censor. And I do feel the more you try to repress artists' voices, the more they're going to emerge and sort of circumvent, whether it's, uh, you know, creatively circumvent the algorithm because, you know, this is the new kind of censorship tool or creatively sort of go about uh, speaking or sort of communicating in ways that, you know, still kind of keeps the integrity of their art and their work or what they want to say. So big tech obviously, they're the, the ones that, that control social media. What's your, your thoughts about the fact that they can even decide what, what should or should not be sent, shared or censored? That's, it's so difficult because, you know, we all throughout, all the people that really are interested in futures and technology were really attracted to the metaverse and Web3 because of the idea or this utopian ideal of a decentralized community or a decentralized world that's sort of bottoms up versus top down, 
where everybody has like an equal share and not all profit and not all control is at the top of the chain. Uh, and there is like this equality and sort of very much, you know, with power comes control, comes, you know, all these types of things. And it's very difficult to sort of, use because you see the bias even with the emerging technology like AI that sort of is developing. You can't really do much about it. You can just be out, try to outsmart it and sort of, you know, keep reimagining other, because the future I feel is going to be very much about subcultures and sub-communities outside of the sort of, you know, dominant one social media for all. It's bound to happen. It's already happening on Discord, and it's just going to continue happening with a variety. Now that we're going to have AI now, you can, you know, create your own app, and you can create your own tools like ChatGPT, and there's going to be way more. They're bound to be like all these sort of smaller sub culture that are going to emerge that are really interested in a decentralized aspect where the entire community is equally sort of okay with what's being shared and also it's co-owned by the community where it sort of also gives uh, space to all voices including marginalized voices including you know elders and younger and indigenous any voice that sort of is not typically represented within the framework of uh, what we have now and not sort of always kind of put within the machine of algorithm for profit or for, you know, commercial advertising kind of dollar amount at the end. Mm -hmm. It's bound to bust, you know, it's just a matter of time. I think it's been interesting to watch social media's evolution and I've been working in the space for, yeah, God, a good nine years now and it's, it started off as being a very social kind of platform. You know, we used to upload packets of chips, our favorite chips on Instagram or grainy photos. Like people weren't so uh, particular, I guess, about the what went out there. It was a lot more creative. There was a lot more community. Mm -hmm. You used to get 700 likes for your chips, for God's sake, you know? <laughs> In these days... The it's, 90s era, that was like the uh, best. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Or MySpace. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I loved my MySpace photo. It was purple-hued. Anyway, um, but these days, it, it very much feels like everybody's trying to be an influencer. Um, it, it feels very much like the the social aspects gone it just feels like people are just chucking stuff out and you know it's lost all kinds of authenticity it feels very fake uh is the way that I see it you spoke about the community aspect and these little sort of indie I guess social media things do you think that's how it's, it's going to evolve do you not think it's going to be something like maybe like Roblox or some kind of massive platform where the younger generation are, are hiding these days? I don't believe it's going to be a massive platform. I think the need for validation has sort of driven a lot of the sort of youth culture in general and the sort of validation that sort of has been driven by the likes and the algorithm has been the social currency. What, I, what the shift that I'm seeing is sort of the currency of the future is more about authenticity. People are abandoning. There is a lot of smaller counter movement to this very sort of like polished, ultra curated. That's why TikTok, for instance, became so popular because it's the antithesis of the sort of super curated uh, Instagram. Although, you know, I veer towards 
Instagram because I prefer my perspective is naturally curatorial. But for many people, it's not naturally curatorial or not naturally like within an aesthetic framework, and that's okay. I think the problem is when a platform forces you to perform or sort of rewards you or validates you only based on its metric. Well, my vision for the future is that all social media will be decentralized and interoperable. So for instance, people go to your website and they can find you. You will be hosting the different social media within your website. So you will have your own way to sort of be able to showcase whether you are on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, or whatever within your own universe. You're able, you have the capability to curate your own world and it's all interoperable and they're all connected. You don't have to recreate, reinvent the wheel and recreate different profile. You're no longer at the service of the platform. The platform becomes dormant. Think of it as Stripe. You know the Stripe payment yes. where it, it's not dominant, it's just facilitating a transaction. To me, the social media platforms of the future are just going to facilitate a transaction where based on your needs, you're going to have all these other tools that are kind of in the background facilitating what your universe might look like. So if you want people to shop secondhand instead of sending them to a platform that's secondhand, but you have your wardrobe that you want to sell, instead of sending them there, everything will become hosted within your own universe. So your universe will host all the stuff that you love and your likes and all these platform will be there, but they'll be dormant and interoperable. That will be the ideal sort of future that I foresee. And I think a lot of people want because it is more in control of the individual rather than the sort of mega powers controlling sort of everything about it. I think that's a very interesting concept. And when you were describing it to me, I almost pictured like an AI avatar or a metaverse, if you will. Or a digital twin. Or a digital, digital twin. twin could be there, yeah. Totally. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then from that, you've got all of these other worlds. I've got a fashion label on Decentraland. I um, released it for the world's first metaverse fashion week, which, gosh, must have been about two and a half years ago. And the thing that ground my gears like really annoyed me is the fact that I can't take my fashion anywhere else. Right. Here I am talking to digital designers and being like, hey, can you do something from Roblox? But, oh gosh, if we're going to make it for Roblox, then the fashion's going to look quite basic because these Roblox look like little square Lego humans. Whereas if I put it on spatial, I can do something fantastical and made of fire and totally. so creative. So um, being able to own things and take them within things sounds really cool mm -hmm. and something that really annoys me about social media these days especially working in the space is that god if we're producing something for instagram for a client we then have to render it in a different way for youtube and exactly. linkedin and customize it for each of the platforms it just seems ridiculous exactly and this is what i mean this is just like busy work you don't need to do that you're completely diluting your capability to actually create work that's meaningful by just adapting and sort of having to sort of change it and sort of render it or kind of position it to be able to fit that particular status quo within that particular platform. And because the future being more kind of a combination of spatial computing and physical world, now we're obviously still bound by the hardware. But once the hardware is no longer a sort of obstacle, 
digital fashion and your wardrobe, everything is going to be sort of much easier sort of to be accessible and be seen. Now you're going to struggle by having other kind of places where you're going to put all your digital goods. How are they going to sort of like go from all these different platforms? I think it was a great test when, you know, Instagram launched threads because everybody brought their followers along. It was like an easy transition. And that's how it should be, I think, across all platform where you're literally kind of everything kind of transitions very easily, but everything caters to you as an individual versus the other way around. What about data? I guess that brings me on, on to my next point. Um, obviously, we've got Instagram, we've got threads, we've got WhatsApp, we've got Facebook. I remember it must have been about three years ago I downloaded my Facebook data. Oh, my God, don't do it. You're better off just not thinking about it. I was horrified about all of the conversations that it had, all of the messages I've ever sent anybody, even at university, however many years ago when I was just a little bit weird, you know? Yeah. And um do you, th do you think we should be worried about data in, in today's digital world? Is this something that's going to become even more worrisome? I mean, I think it's interesting. I, I think social, a lot of our data and social media, it's almost like the digital journals, that, you know, of the digital journals of modern day. We always used to have, you know, our own intimate journals or sort of like our own like little letters and such that used to be sent. And although those weren't sort of accessible to the world. Now there is a high possibility that they might be. So there is a big shift in terms of the idea of our thoughts and our kind of personal kind of playgrounds, our mind playgrounds, are now no longer our own. They're shared playgrounds. And there is two things about this that sort of is tricky because you have to sort of you're much more mindful now in terms of what you share and what you don't share than when it first started and just like with the internet when it first was born we had no idea where it's going to go and how much we shared and what we didn't share we had we were completely blindsided and now the era of ai comes along and we're pushing data on it as well but we're much more mindful as far as how that can be harnessed or leveraged Look, all our data is already out there as far as like from our credit card to all our sort of anything that sort of is your information, whether it's your uh, ID information or your sort of metrics or whatever that might be. As soon as you're connected to some device, whether you're sort of like working out and it's connected to like sort of an Apple device or you are sort of browsing uh, an online shop and there is that entire data, everything is already sort of being tracked what we need to be much more mindful of, not be sort of so concerned about that, go with the flow with this, but be mindful about what we want, be much more kind of uh, editorial as far as what we want to put out there and have conversations in real person, like in-person conversation, keep those things precious and keep the idea of the pen and the paper still handy and journaling for anything that we want to sort of keep to ourselves because there is going to be a low-tech, high-tech kind of world in the future. That's what I call like artisanal intelligence and artificial intelligence, which is the hand touch, everything that sort of is very much, you know, in the real world, very low-tech. There's a lot of movement in that that's also emerging now in the music world and all these different words where it's like lo-fi, versus hi-fi and that's just only going to be exasperated even with the idea of repair recycle all these different things 
are going to continue emerging that are anti-data and that's how you're going to be able to have control in the future or sort of balance, you know, what's out there and what's not. In terms of the environment and sustainability and other big global problems like this, do you think that technology is going to help eliminate them or eliminate human suffering overall or is it going to be uh, a situation where we potentially have even more of a divide, the haves and the haves-nots. You, you said earlier um, as well about how technology is a reflection of us. So naturally with humans, you've got the good and you've got the bad and then all of that's being reflected back. You know, I was just at the Future Forum and also I went to COP um, and there is a lot of innovative, amazing thing that technology is going to achieve and help us kind of resolve as far as all the damage that we've done to this planet and around sustainability, about around creating new material and around sort of undoing a lot of the damage. My sort of concern that hasn't been sort of as kind of focused on is that a lot of the technology that we're currently using are on the backs of a lot of really bad circumstances like what's happening in the Congo. Every device that we kind of use, every generator that's generating AI is needing raw material that is sort of being extracted in the most violent manner. And in order for us to have the technology to help us resolve the technology, we're going through a very sort of a brutal kind of reality. And that sort of is something difficult to kind of reconcile with or sort of find a solution for. As an individual, though, in order to sort of kind of circumvented and sort of be a little bit more in peace with it. It's being more aware of knowing that this is what's necessary for the technology to be powered. You know, being more mindful when buying a smart device, Don't you don't have to upgrade every year, you know, or, you know, be more circular in your approach. Be, for me, a lot of my work, I always encourage how can you be a better future ancestor? And that comes as an individual. If you want to be a better future ancestor, it's you can't only rely on the technology to help with sustainability. It always starts from the individual, thinking long-termism, thinking circularly, more quality over quantity, you know, go towards repair initiatives. Think of when technology is needed and when, when it's not needed. Always kind of encourage cultural currency versus you know, fast consumerism and things of you just want them. Always encourage, you know, um, yourself to kind of support artisans and craftsmen. Always think about what is the end cycle of the product that I'm buying and what was the start cycle of it. And I think it does start from an individual perspective and technology. What it's going to help is help us on an individual level if you're using AI kind of brainstorm better ways that you can sort of maybe wash your dishes or sort of do your typical chores in the most efficient way possible as quantum computing is being developed to sort of find bigger solution for like bigger problem bigger planetary issues that they will help super solve but at the same time understanding how is that technology being powered if there is a way that we can power it in a much more ethical way, because right now it's just really kind of scary, that part. Mm. You spoke a bit about before bias. 
and it's something that that really concerns me, bias when it comes to technology getting developed. And I was horrified yet again last week to see that every single person on the OpenAI board is a male. Here we are again, you know, it's it's the same old story week after week and this company is is, is playing big when it comes to AI, they're, they're developing AI, like they're, they're thinking, they're shaping our future. And out of however many billion of, of women on the, the planet, there is not one that, that could be sitting on the board. What can we be doing in order to, uh, I don't know, yeah, having more diversity when it comes to the development of technology? As far as AI and the data as well, the data that's being fed and the people that are actually sort of responsible for programming the data and their insight. And who are the type of people that are developing the technology? And it's funny because um, I work with, you know, different think tanks and foresight sort of societies too, and we do a lot of research as well. And we talk a lot about digital colonialism in the sense, because a lot of the technology is being developed by the same players that have a lot of the power right now and have had the, the, the power, have the advancement, have the technology, has have the most sort of like capability to do such work. And whatever they're doing and whoever they are, they're still reflecting, reflecting the same kind of framework that we've been sort of trying to fight. These the systems that are already kind of rigged, that are super kind of male dominant, super white male dominant, etc. What I kind of try to sort of encourage a lot, uh, especially the within the framework of education, because I teach also how people can superpower their creativity and change their workflow through the use of AI, because the bias is there. So basically the data set, although they try and say, you know, they're people from all walks of life that they hire, whether it's ethical, people around ethics, people around policymaking, philosophers, all types of people. I don't think there is an adequate representation within those companies to develop the AI. There is no indigenous voices, there is no elderly, there is not necessarily young people, kids, all these people all their voices are not present within the data set or within the framework of how the data is being developed. Although there are some that are sort of on a smaller scale being developed around those particular framework. However, I think our responsibility is to sort of feed it from our end as individual users, the data that we would like to see. For example, a very simple example, especially when I first started using AI, if you sort of like prompt a princess with AI, immediately it's going to give you the very kind of predominant, you know, Eurocentric woman, young, uh, very sort of stereotypical princess. Like you a will, Disney princess. A, a very Disney princess, but like the not the current Disney because Disney is now to trying to diversify. True. It's sort of more the sort of old school idea of a Disney princess. Without you even sort of mentioning anything, the biases are there. If I say, for instance, I want to sort of prompt an Arab person, it's immediately going to sort of also go towards a lot of the stereotypes of what Arab means. What I think is key to circumvent it is not only to not use the word that they are programming to match the stereotype. How I always encourage people to prompt is to sort of describe something as though you're a child, you don't know what it's called. 
you don't know that this thing that I'm seeing in front of you is a woman or is a human. You don't know that as a kid. You haven't learned that, that language. How would you describe it? And this is how you'll get better results that are not biased because a bias is very much related to language. And because you have a set of people that are programming images based on a set of language, how you could sort of be as a citizen is, first of all, insert data that's not there that you want to see in the sort of data set, which you could do through your prompting, through many different things that you do as a training module, and it will sort of slowly help train it. Also, be very mindful with the wording that you use and don't fall into the bias trap because we are so accustomed to using those words, we don't even think about them twice, but each word is so loaded. What if we have a new, an, an entirely new language, which I think AI is going to sort of have us or force us to sort of have, which is this language of talking to the machine in ways that feels much more exciting and interesting than the typical language or the, like the lazy language that we typically use and it sort of is immediate and faster and it's associated with all these things that are also very loaded. I think that's an interesting thing to think about really. When, when you were talking about that, I was even thinking of coding mm -hmm. and how coding is a language mm -hmm. to, to, to do whatever. Or when we used to communicate to each other when we were younger, we used to type you with a, a you, you know, because right. we were just like, oh my God, we, we've got no predictive. This isn't, we've got to type each letter out manually. So we right. had shortcuts and ways of doing things. And or emojis or whatever. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you're right. We probably will start to see its own language of, of communication and how we're prompting the machine mm -hmm. being developed. And if we're not potentially contributing towards it now, perhaps the language will start to develop and the people who were part of it will, will be clued up in it. And then the people who haven't been as involved, when it comes to join it later, it might be this complicated, very different sort of thing that you then have to really learn. Totally. I mean, it's, it's exactly how an artist observe before they're painting. Because you're producing an image at the end of the day or you're producing a text. So you have to put your, always put your shoes in the framework of what kind of image are you producing. If you're producing something that's ultimately an image or ultimately a text, an artist usually, they're not saying a woman that I'm painting, for instance. They're actually starting with the skin texture and they're sort of like looking at the detail and they're sort of doing the hair. They're actually observing that form and they're drawing it at the same time. It's the same idea with prompting. It's not the same language that we typically use. And even when you want to sort of produce text or poetry or even music, it's going to be a very kind of similar framework to those particular observation and skill set. So when we talk about what is the key to prompt effectively in general, knowledge is still like subject matter knowledge is still super important and being able to be cultural and being able to be observant and being able to really think about a different way to sort of arm yourself with a different perspective in order to communicate. Awesome. Well, I think it's been so insightful to, to hear your thoughts about artificial intelligence and art and in the future. And yeah, I'm sure lots of people saw, heard lots of value from you. So thank you so much for joining the of show course. today. Thanks so much for having me. Great question. I really appreciate uh, all that you brought to the table today. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.